It's kind of a hazy day in the neighborhood, but boy, do we have a lot of things to get to. Pediatric robot-assisted neurosurgery? We're not going to perform it on this show. That's probably not a good idea. But we are going to talk about it because the first one of these in Ontario happened here in London. That's kind of the place we live in. That sort of thing tends to come up, and it's a great story. And in fact, yesterday we were learning about epilepsy on the show, and today, in about an hour, that's what we're going to focus in on. This is a procedure that has really assisted somebody who's going to be playing for a Junior Mustangs championship this weekend in football, has assisted him, and in a way, he's going to be on the field this weekend because of that. We are also going to talk about something that has popped up, and it's pot pardons. We're going to get to what has happened, what the government has done, and then get some reaction on that. And in a half hour from now, you'll want to be listening because you may have heard the story already that we have seen layoffs coming to Cami. So this is happening in the very near future. And the president of Local Unifor 88, Mike Van Bokel, is going to join us. But it'll, trust me, it will strike a conversation about whether you are willing to pay for quality. Because as much as this is a story about layoffs, and anyone who is working at Cami has to go through this again, this is not a new thing, this has happened before, these are not permanent layoffs, but it does mean a shutdown of the plant. But at the same time, there seems to be a real silver lining here. And we'll explain it in a half hour from now. But the topic that will come up is, are you willing to pay for quality? Or when you go looking to, say, go away or buy something, is it just that bottom line? Is it just that price? Well, look, this one costs $300 and this one costs $303. I know which way I'm going. I'm going to save the $3. I'm going to get a coffee on the way home. That's how we spend our money, right? The money you didn't spend is money that you now have in your pocket. That's a first world problem right there. We want to begin, though, with a very good friend of London Live, very good friend of Chorus Radio London, Chris Campbell, the Director of Culture and Entertainment Tourism with Tourism London, because there's something interesting that Chris is knocking on doors about, and I'm pretty sure it's not just doors. I'm pretty sure that texts will be involved in this. There may be the odd email in this, and it's trying to figure out what appears to be a pretty puzzling situation. And I'd like to tell you that at the end of our conversation, we'll be able to say, well, there it is, and they all lived happily ever after. Let's move on. That's not what this is going to be. There isn't a happily ever after right now. Maybe there could be. Chris has created a lot of happily ever afters in his time, so there could be one out there. But right now, let's just get to what this story is. So, Chris, welcome to the show as we go into Once Upon a Time. (laughs) There were many festivals and things that were held in London, Ontario. And I think that's where our story begins. And we get a chance to look at some things like grants that can be made available to some of these festivals to really help them either grow or hit new levels. Where would you like to kind of point to in London where festivals are affected? Well, festivals obviously have enormous economic impact in London, also an enormous uh, socioeconomic. I mean, they make our city vibrant and come alive at all times of the year, especially in, you know, in the summer. And there are, there are numerous um, opportunities for granting programs that the province makes available and at different levels of government make available to help 
provide either seed money or enhance or augment existing or create new programming activities. And they've been very important to allow many festivals that we have in London grow. Uh, Sunfest, um, Home County, uh, Rock the Park, there are many that uh, have um, participated in these programs and they have. They've helped you know, an event like Rock the Park has grown from a couple days in the park to this monstrosity four, you know, uh, four day events. It's they've added days, they've added larger artists. They're they're pulling in, um, they're donating money to charity about three and a half million dollars in sixteen years. I mean, that's really they've really helped this event become a major destination event in London. And I don't know if you know this, but forty one percent of the attendees are coming from outside of forty kilometers from London. Really? So yeah, it's it's filling that's hotel how rooms. Big this it is. is huge. Rock the Park is huge. Sunfest, of course, is huge. There are, you know, they, they put London on the map year after year after year, and they help us get these major events like the Junos, and, and because it, may, it really helps solidify the fact that we are a culture, entertainment, and sports uh, destination. We're a destination for people to come because it's a great city. And so when you're looking at these granting programs, they are very important. They've helped things grow. And, that's and do they come from the federal government, the provincial all different government, levels. There's all quite levels? A few. Well, all, all levels, but the province is definitely a, a major uh, a facilitator of, of those products. Okay. So they exist. Yes. And how, how do they work? What happens in order well, to apply for one of these? They will apply, and, and, and most recently through Celebrate Ontario, they had the air show and uh, Sunfest both received grants. And um, uh, to help those two great events grow. And that's great. Uh, uh, great news for both of them. And um, at the same time, we've become aware that and, – and we realize that every year it's very competitive. Every year, year after year, is obviously a very different process that they go through in terms of um, you know, adjudicating where, where and how and that where, the, where the money is allocated. But this year for 2019, through the regular uh, Celebrate Ontario funding, two grants were approved for London, the Air Show and, um, and Sunfest. And several that had been recipients in the past uh, weren't, uh, we're only aware of uh, two right now that, and, and of course, we're not aware of the full extent of it, but Rock the Park did not receive funding. And uh, also Park Jam, which is a new festival, did not uh, receive their funding. And so... When you look at that on the surface, um, you start to question, okay, where did the rest of the money go? And that's one thing. When you start noticing things like you know, twenty, approximately 28 events, totaling a million and five plus, were approved in Ottawa, it's a pretty notable disparity when you think two events in London and about $130,000. It's just, there is a disparity there. And so you have to ask questions knowing that grants weren't approved. In the recent weeks, some of the festival operators have approached us, and they've noticed that um, grants were being re- decisions were being reversed. Most recently in Ottawa and in Hamilton, and so that's what there's obviously a process going on where decisions are being reversed. And so I guess we're we're asking is we would like obviously some of the London events to be um, reviewed again, and we're not. F- we are not aware of the full extent of who may or may not have uh, received. I'm only aware of two. Uh, there may be others out there. We're just, you know, we're we're asking that the, the that the grants be looked at again, or the applications be looked at again, whatever they might be. And certainly among those would be Rock the Park and uh, Park Jam. We're talking with Chris Campbell in studio, director of culture and entertainment tourism with Tourism London. And here's the thing: if there are, and a lot of people will go through this, if there are grants available for you to take something that you're working on and 
and help it to grow or make it even better. You look at some of the money that is actually put forward by people who are willing to put on festivals saying, I think this can work. I think this can be big. I believe in it so much. I'm going to take it out of my pocket and I'm going to put it out there and then hopefully we can make it grow and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then you know that benefits everyone in the end. So as Chris is saying, we've got a few whether it's festivals or events, applying for grants. And in the London area, it's difficult to know how many, but we're looking at some that received the grant money before, now has been turned down, and yet you mentioned the numbers in Ottawa. Let's go back through those. So there were at least 28 events or yeah. festivals that applied for money in Ottawa. Uh, and or that received it. That received money. Received money. That's even bigger. That's what I mean. There's, so there's about approximately 28, uh, approximately 28 yeah. in Ottawa, totaling approximately a million five. And so in London, there were two that were approved, totaling $130,000. That is a big disparity. Yeah. It's like yeah. A, yeah. So... How do you find out then? What what doors do you go knocking on to say, hey, can can we get a little bit more explanation about this? Well, we're just, we, we want to, first of all, bring attention to it. And second of all, all we're asking is during the, it appears that they, they are reviewing some of the grants because we've become, festival organizers have brought it to our attention that you know, most recently uh, an Ottawa festival was being reviewed and the decision previously, they were declined. Now they're receiving the money. Um, oh, so it wasn't that an Ottawa right. one, they went, oh, look at how many we have here. Let's, right. let's turn back no, the no, clock. No, 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 they, 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 um, they recently approved a decision that had been previously reversed that was declined. And then more recently, I believe, um, in the last week, Supercrawl in Hamilton, which is just an amazing event. And what has, is Supercrawl? Oh, Supercrawl in Hamilton is just an outstanding, you know, it's in September. You know, I don't want to be telling people to go to Hamilton for an event. That's not my job, <laughs> certainly. But um, it's an incredible event. They were uh, reassessed and uh, and now are receiving their money, okay. um, which is great news. I mean, that's that's helping that the province helping those cities grow. So obviously, there is a process of reevaluating grants that were previously declined. All, all I'm, what we're trying to say is. Can we please have the London you know, grants looked at again in whatever context and whatever process is occurring? That's all. In fairness. Yeah. And that doesn't sound like a whole lot to ask. No, no. And, that, and, and we're hopeful. And you know, obviously we're hopeful. I think it's great news that they're, they're, they are um, reevaluating this. And, and we hope to, there's some great news in London in the coming weeks. Chris Campbell joining us from Tourism London. We mentioned there wasn't going to be a happily ever after in the story, but at least this is the story as it develops. Can we take a minute and just look at the people who put on some of these things? Sure. Whether it's Alfredo and Sunfest, whether it's the air show organizers, whether it's Jones Entertainment Group, and rock the park mm-hmm. and and what it does take because we don't always appreciate mm-hmm. that from a, a third party position the things are happening right. we go we have a great time we leave yeah we don't necessarily realize the the size of the undertaking or right. or maybe even you know there has to be some risk factor in this there, too isn't there there is an enormous uh risk factor there is enormous liability they, they are taking a chance and I'll tell you, there have been sleepless nights by a lot of these people you've mentioned in the past, um, and uh, they put a lot of hard work. And uh, it's it's year after year they have to reinvent themselves and and um, and get bigger. And 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 then you think of all the other th- things, all the volunteers uh, opportunities. I mentioned that the the impact uh, for charitable events and. Emerging artists, uh, allowing uh, local emerging artists the opportunity to play on a big stage, which they do. 
there's um, a lot of integration into the community that occurs with these events, and uh, it makes London what it is. And so our job is to advocate on their behalf, and, and um, when we see a disparity like that, we want to kind of draw attention to it. No, good, great. I mean, here's hoping that you're able to get some of those answers mm-hmm. that, uh, that you're looking for. Reinventing, that's got to be one of the toughest parts that anyone goes through now. Yeah. You, you can't do it the same way that no. you used to, can you? Well, if you think about Rock the Park started, and I don't want to speak, you know, it's 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 evolved and changed in different genres of music. And it was just classic rock at the beginning. Just, it was the, yeah, the old Hawks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, think what it is now. And I'm, you know, and we have reputable um, economic assessments and we've worked with uh, Jones Entertainment and they've, they are bringing in jobs, they're bringing in charity, they're bringing in visitor spending, you know, over $2 million dollars in visitor spending, you know, like 40,000 people almost go a year. And when, and they've done the, the surveys and about 40% of them are from outside of 40 kilometers. People are coming in from all over and it depends, varies on the act every year. Sure. But you're bringing people in from the States and, and they're staying in hotels and they're going out for dinner and you ask anyone along, you know, in the downtown and, and the bars are full after, before, and, and then they closed down 11 and, and it's, it's such an enormous impact to the local economy. So we're grateful. You know, as a final note, the culture of London, Ontario, we know that, that there has been a, a real initiative to to really find a way to, to fit music into the mm-hmm. fabric of this city, things like that. How are you seeing that develop? It's it's part of it's being done organically. I, I think the city, it, it involves so many organizations. And so the city, uh, through the creation of the music office, was a huge initiative because it really helped uh, provide a voice and an advocate for the uh, um, uh, the local uh, music, se- the local artists, the local uh, uh, sector, and through the culture office, the arts council, tourism London, uh, many organizations have worked together very collaboratively on different levels, and so it's it's made the job easier to go out and and you know recently we hosted the Junos, it was an easy it was a hard pitch to make. I'm not going to kid you, um, but um, without the work that the foundation that had been laid, you know, and the infrastructure, it's making it easier now to go after some of these events again, uh, perhaps, um, you know, uh, future, you know, country music weeks or other events. And it's also providing um, uh, the infrastructure uh, and the uh, the right atmosphere for event organizers like Jones or Sunfest to continue to grow or do new things. You know, and so it's important that we support them. Yeah. Well, obviously that is happening. The idea that the grant money doesn't seem to match up and the fact that you're looking into this, let us know if you do uncover anything or you do hear anything because, yeah, it doesn't seem to match when you've got a city. Sure, Ottawa's a little bit bigger than London, but it's not a lot bigger than Mm -hmm. London. And the idea that you've got all kinds of different events and festivals receiving these grants and then you hear that in London, well, actually, a couple that used to get it don't get the money this time around. It does make you ask what's going on here. So, Chris, thanks for asking what's going on here. That's right. Have a great day. You too. Chris Campbell here from Tourism London, Director of Culture and Entertainment Tourism. Let's take a break on London Live, back with a whole lot more. Again, in about 20 minutes from now, we're really going to look into quality over cost. And are you willing to pay for quality? And this is going to be because of something that you'll hear Mike Van Bogel, the president of Local Unifor 88, talk about with regard to upcoming layoffs at CAMI, which, yes, 
are not a positive thing. But there is just a, a little bit of this that you can look at and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's more to this. We'll get to the more to this 20 minutes from now. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. I don't know if this is just me. It probably is. But I keep seeing things that I've never really seen before. I keep seeing things that you think, what is that? What, what is happening there? Kind of like what Chris Campbell was talking about. He saw something. We had festival organizers who saw something that they weren't receiving some grant money that they did receive before, that you had all kinds of festivals and events in Ottawa being approved to the tune of $1.5 million when London's festivals, only two of them were approved and received $130,000. There was some disparity there. So what's going on? That was his question. Here's what I saw this morning, and I, I really believe I did. There was a man... He was driving a gray car, and along the dashboard of the gray car, probably, you know, piled up not too, too high. He didn't have, I won this at Western Fair, but he had stuffed toys, pink and white toys, stuffed bears or whatever they were. He went by me too fast. I couldn't see what they were. They were lined all along the dashboard, so the front window. Basically, in the front window of this little gray car. Did I see that right? You can't have that. You can't put that in your window. I mean, it's it's one thing to put a Kleenex box on the back window so that the kids can reach back. The kids have runny noses. You've, you've got to be able to handle that on long drives. But you can't do that, can you? That's illegal, is it not? I'm thinking it's illegal. I just, I've never seen that before. If there's anything that you see that you think, I've never seen that before, could you send me an email? I think there's a book. I think we could put together a book. Not even just London, Ontario. Be free and willing to go wherever you want to go. And if you see something you think, I've never seen that before, email me. Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Here's something that we're probably going to see other stores follow, but this this is a, an interesting little thing from Sobeys, and I would like to give them a clap, two hands clapping, because of what they've decided to do. We've had, and there are still people who get all upset about this, but we've had plastic drinking straws essentially go by the wayside. You can get them if you want them, but they're harder to get, and now we've got a lot of times the paper straws and people complain about those because they get all mushy. And Well, we're in a transition period here, I guess. Transition period. But the thing that has just blown my mind through all of this, oh, the plastic drinking straws, which are an issue because of the plastic that they're made of, but the fact that we have plastic bags that exist in grocery stores. And when you forget your bags and... I'd like to tell you I'm the biggest environmentalist and recycler. I try. I'm not very good all the time. Kind of sums up all of my life. I can say, yeah, I'm, I'm putting in the effort. It's not always working. So when I forget my bags, do I get plastic bags? Yeah, I'll admit it. I get plastic bags. Sobeys is doing away with plastic bags from all 255 locations across Canada. We don't have a Sobeys in London, do we? Uh, by the end of January 2020. That's pretty quick. This is not... Two Januarys from now, this is this coming January, and they're getting rid of all of the plastic bags. 
This has to come, right? You can't can't offer plastic bags. I still think if you're going to do anything, bring back the old paper bags and support the bottom. I know you get wet stuff in there. Support the bottom. It's like carrying a baby. Support the head. You got to support the bottom when you're carrying the grocery bags. Al, welcome to London Live. What do you think? Well, Mike, uh, one thing you brought up there about stuff on the dash bag, on the dashboard. There's a few reasons why they've actually changed that. Dashboards, if you notice, on most cars now are sloped. Mm -hmm. They're not flat anymore like they were when we grew up with the old 70 Chevs and stuff. That's so that they can't place stuff on the dash and to aid for airbag and deployment. The only, the big issue that it's caused though is now it's more comfortable for people to put their feet up on the dash when they're traveling. And as you can understand, if an airbag ever blows off, well, their ankles end up past their ears and they're broke up pretty good, right? Ah. So that's one of the problems. The other thing is I am a mechanic and I actually safety vehicles. I actually had a car about a month ago that had all those little wobbly figurines okay. stuck to their dash, right across their dash. And we have uh, in our safety manual, anything that obscure, obscures the view of the driver's seat to the road, because some kids will tint with dark tint at the top and bottom. You've probably seen that yeah. with the narrow view. So we fail a vehicle for that. So because I knew this customer, I actually went by with a razor blade and sliced off every one of his little features <laughs> that were across the back, just so he could get through safety so that I said to him, I said, you can put them on after. It does not matter to me, but for me, I can't have them there. But it's good to know safe. that, yeah, if you're safetying a vehicle, you are looking out for things like that. Because the other one, you bring up tint. We've got to talk about tint pretty soon because I feel for the police officers, there is a maximum tint that you can have. And I'm thinking there are a lot of vehicles out there that have to be going past you. You have to be able to see the driver in the vehicle anymore. I don't know how many tinted vehicles you can actually see the driver. Al, got to run for news. Thanks so much Thanks. for the call. Bye. Have a great afternoon. We are going to run for news. Then we are going to get into quality over cost. You're willing to pay for quality? You won't believe. Well, maybe you will. I hope you will because it's an optimistic view. You won't believe, though, what is happening with regard to something the GM is doing. And it actually does seem to lean to quality over cost. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. A couple of days ago on London Live, we were talking about artificial lawns. Would you take your lawn, get rid of it, put up plastic grass? You can't really do it in Toronto because they have a part of their bylaw which indicates you have to have soft turf so it takes away the plastic. And there is a woman who is fighting this right now because she's being told she's going to be fined. I think it's $1,400. I mean, it's a big fine. And then she would have to put in sod, so there's the cost of doing that, and I don't know where you would put your plastic lawn, but we asked whether you would. What we found is a lot of people already have. Got a note from Joe that said, we did our backyard in rocks and perennials. Only maintenance is in the fall when the leaves come down in between the rocks. To maintain the look, it takes a little bit of work to remove the leaves. Bonus is, though, no more grass cutting, no more disposal, all of that sort of thing. Yeah, I... The way that it goes now, you look at how little rain we've had over the last while. Everybody's lawn was nice and green and lush in the early spring when we were all complaining about how wet it was. Now it's kind of brown and crackly and the weeds are taking over. Makes you think, eh, for the outlay, it would cost money at the beginning, but 
Would it save you? I don't think you'd ever recoup the cost on gas in the lawnmower. That's 15 bucks a year, pretty much. Unless you have a big lawn, maybe you're up to a couple hundred bucks a year. I don't think you're spending that much on gas to cut your lawn. But overall, when you look at the time spent, eh, what's your time worth? How much should you be worth an hour? We'll get into that discussion in an indirect way in just a minute or two. This is London Live. Joining us on the phone right now, our good friend Marilyn. Marilyn, how are you? Oh, not too bad. Thank you, dear. I've been away for a couple of days doing things. And, um, well, to get on with what I'm going to talk about, I'm all for retro. I'm all for paper bags. I miss them. Well, so do I. And they had little handles on them, you know. And I'm all for anything retro, dear. I'm old-fashioned. I'll be 85 <laughs> in January. And I like, I, well, I go back a lot. But you own a cell phone. You're, you're not completely retro. No, but, uh, well, the cell phone is handy. It's, uh, you know, if I, I go anywhere of a distance, I like to have a cell phone with me. Well, we should bring back the paper bags. I miss the smell of the paper bags, and they would be a whole lot better. Now, of course, you can bring your own bags, and that's what Sobeys is encouraging. Well, yeah. So we'll wait to yeah. see what happens. Marilyn? Well, I've got a walker now, dear, so, and I use that quite a bit. Then it's got a, a, a what do you call it? A basket on it, mm-hmm. and I do have um, uh, cloth bags that I take to the grocery store and tell them to put as much in them as they can because they have to sit in that carriage, or whatever you call it, basket, or on my seat of this walker. See, and that's a very forward-thinking thing. Marilyn, you think you're all retro. No, no, you're, you're as forward-thinking as anybody. Thanks for the call today, all right? Thank you, dear, and I think of a lot of you and your dear family. Well, we're still talking dog. I think I'm, I may have found a way to get a dog. I may Ooh, I'll really I'll probably dog. tell the story on Friday. I don't think Ooh. I don't think the family knows about this yet, but maybe Ooh. I'll tell it tomorrow. That'd be your wife would be so happy. I'd like to be there when you give her the dog. Oh, with, maybe we could arrange that. Oh, that would be wonderful. Marilyn, you have an excellent afternoon. You too, dear. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We'll take a break. Up next, we're going to talk about layoffs at Cami. And we're not going to do this and say, okay, this is the worst thing in the world. It's not great. It never is. These are not brand new layoffs. This is not a new type of layoff. And let's be very clear, this is not a permanent layoff. But I think there's more to this story. And it comes when you look at what General Motors is doing between the plant at Cami and a plant in Mexico, where we're actually seeing the nod, it would appear, go to Cami. And it brings up, are you willing to pay for quality? You would think big corporations, no way. No way are they willing to put quality over cost. No, that's not what it's about anymore. Well, wait a minute. We all know life is just a great big pendulum that swings back and forth. And for a while, that pendulum has kind of been stuck at, well, if we can get it cheaper, we should do that. Instead of, wait a minute. If we can make something good, something quality, let's do that. More to come. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Before we get to what is happening at Cami, got a note from Rose. Rose says, I think what Sobeys is going to do is great. One other thing to take to the store, baskets. And Rose looks to Europe for this. I've never grocery shopped in Europe. Rose says it is still, after many years, how people shop in Europe. 
There are types of carryalls, collapsible cloth baskets. We've got to get away from what is convenient for us, but not for the environment. Plastic bags have blown my mind forever. Oh, well, we've got to get all the plastic out of our environment. Uh, can you put my meat in that uh, plastic bag there? And oh, yeah, put the put the Cheerios in a different plastic bag. Yeah, we've really got to get the plastic out of the environment. Oh, can I get a few more plastic bags? Got a litter box to clear out later today. <laughs> That's the kind of thing we're doing. What? How does this happen? When we look a little bit east, we look toward Ingersoll. You can find the Cami plant. And we received word today that we are going to have another layoff at the Cami plant. But this seems to have more to it than just uh, here comes a layoff. Joining us right now is the plant chair at Cami, Mike Van Bokel. Mike, let's start before we get to anything else with what these particular layoffs do mean. Uh, well, right now we are going down for a week. September 30th, the last week of September, we are going down for a week. There will be more weeks in the fourth quarter. They have not confirmed how many or the dates. So let's go back in time a little bit because this does come around from time to time. Layoffs like this happen. Is this one of those things that just, hey, it, it, it happens, you get through it, or is there anything different with regard to this one? No, I think that's exactly right. We're in the auto industry. It's very cyclical. And we've been a long time. We've been years and years of, uh, well, we worked, I think, eight years of six days a week, mandatory Saturdays. In the last couple of years, we've just been a solid three shifts, and I think it's just a bump in the road. Uh, the, the news, they're also, uh, there's a Mexican plant that also builds our, uh, the Equinox, and they have been notified that they are going to take a shift off of them permanently starting August 12th. So it's, it's not good news for us, but it's terrible news for them, but... Uh, I think it's quite remarkable with all the news going on with uh, Mexico and everything else that they are electing to take a shift off of a Mexican plant instead of the Cami plant. If we can ask you to, to read a little bit into that, is there anything you've heard as to why they would do that? Because you're right. You, you would think, okay, well, if they're looking to save money, uh, it may be the plant in Mexico that you wouldn't want to have that shift at. Anything you're hearing? Yeah, I think that is for sure. For cost-wise, that's 100%. However, um, we stack up. We are number one across GM in North America, actually by quite a stretch on quality, especially over the Mexican plant. But on all plants alone, we are the number one plant that's on a daily, a daily quality score. Uh, we are the leanest plant in North America. So even compared to Mexico, we build more vehicles with less people. Our, our, our biggest one is our quality. So I'll say it is good to see that GM is, it seems to be taking quality and our build over uh, how Mexico builds them because we we can't compete with cost. We know that we're not going to compete. No one's going to work in Canada for two or three bucks an hour. But I mean, with all, and I think they took a lot of pressure last year too from uh, the Oshawa plant closing. I don't think they want to start paying, uh, having asking taxpayers to pay unemployment to our members and keep the Mexican plant running because I think a lot of a lot of people are upset at how at closing the Oshawa last year and keeping the Mexican plants open. So I'd like to think that's got a lot to do with it as well. Quality over cost, though. I mean, that does that warm your heart a little bit? I'd like to think so. Our quality scores here, we are setting new records all the time for how how good the uh, members are building them. So kudos for them. They're the ones in the trenches that are building them. Um, so I, th I just think it speaks volumes on that. That, that I, Because to be honest, from a business point, you usually would do by the money. But I don't know. Politics, I think, has a lot to do with it, too. And our plan is number one. And how do you how do you not reward your people if they're doing a great job?
Let's talk about how your people deal with this. What sorts of things take place? Um, well, we've got different programs in place. We, we have negotiated subs so they do get a top up of their wages. It is a long way from a full paycheck. And you also have to have uh, five years to qualify for that. So that, that does suck. But most people know in the auto industry that it does go up and down. There's big waves up and down. And it's been, it's been over a decade since it's really hit our plant. But we are very, very well uh, positioned for future growth and for future products. So hopefully this is just a bump in the road. And I would think it is. And hopefully in a year or so we got another product announced and we're off to the races again. We're talking with Mike Van Bokel from Local 88 Unifor, and we're talking about layoffs that have been announced. Now, these would be temporary layoffs. Do you know how long they run, or, again, do you just kind of find that out as you go? Uh, it'll be everybody in our plant, so it's not anybody, not any group of people, but it'll be everybody in the plant other than our trades. They'll keep working, just fixing stuff and preparing stuff. So it will be everybody in the plant, and it's just for one week at a time. So, I mean, it is bad that way. I mean, money's always tight. People live on budgets, but hopefully it's only two or three weeks and we just get going and yeah, keep going again in the new year. How much optimism do you have that you might see something new come to Cami in the near future? I 100% believe we are. I don't think it'd be the near future, but I do believe in the ne- it was sometime in the next calendar year they'll make a major announcement. That's my belief for the Cami plant. We just, our records are just too good compared to everybody, and that's not comparing us to GM. That's comparing us to Toyota's, Honda's, GM, Chrysler, our, our quality is through the roof, and uh, I think that'll get rewarded. How closely do you watch the vehicle market to see what's happening with the, the lack of sedans being produced and, and kind of the, the real focus on SUVs and pickup trucks and vehicles of that kind? Oh, I watch it extremely close. That's our business. Um, the car market has completely shrunk. They're less than 20%, where at one time it was over 80%. And you can see all the uh, different players, all the manufacturers, everybody's jumping into SUVs. And now, in my opinion, it's almost like the SUVs are almost getting split into two categories. It's almost a car SUV and a truck SUV, but the sedans definitely don't sell. And then, uh, like, Ford's hardly building any more cars. GM's dramatically cut back. There's, and there's not a lot of uh, profit margin on a car either. Obviously, the bigger the vehicles, the more options, the better they do. But it seems, uh, like, I'll, I'll take our Equinox, for instance. If you go to a red light, and you look around at someone driving an Equinox, there's just a good a chance of being a man as a woman, and there's just a very good a chance that the person behind the wheel could be 80 years old, they could be 20 years old. And there's a ton of businesses now that we know of that have switched their fleets over to Equinoxes and other SUVs. I mean, my parents drive one. It's great. They're older. They're in their 80s, but you can lift up the back hatch for groceries. It just it, They're easier to get in and out of. It's just, it seems to be a market that fits uh, the vast majority of people. Mike Van Bokel from Unifor Local 88, and, and Mike, is kind of a, a last note on that, when you look at Cami being able to produce the Equinox, what does that position it for if there is a new line involving another SUV product? Oh, we're, we're positioned very well. We've got our old weld shop that's already been shelled out. It's sitting at 400,000 square feet waiting for, a, waiting for a vehicle, and our record will show that we'll build it right, whatever they drop in here, so... Again, to our membership, I think it's great. And to the general public, to your listeners, to the people that buy our vehicles, we just thanks very much for the business, and it keeps us uh, keeps us the jobs. Mike, thanks for the time today. Okay, thank you. Plant chair at Cami, part of Local 88. Uh, Mike Van Bokel. I like some of the things that Mike just said. I don't know about you, but I'm 
as much as you never want to look at layoffs and say, okay, well, but on the brighter side, because that's not what it is. It is difficult for the families who are dealing with this. They have been through this before. That maybe is one caveat. But here's the thing I think we really need to focus on, because to me, this is not business in 2019. I wish it was, and maybe it is in this case. The idea that you have a plant in Mexico and what has been the concern among so much of the manufacturing here in Ontario, leaving, going where it is cheaper to produce. We've seen that happen again and again and again. I don't even have to name off the companies. I could do that for the next 10 minutes. But things that we've lost in Ontario that have gone to places where it's just simply cheaper to produce. In this case, you have a plant in Mexico that is doing the same kind of production. They're losing a shift. They're having likely layoffs that are permanent. They're not doing that for Cami and Ingersoll. And one of the things that Mike pointed to, and this is what I want to believe, it is the quality. And if you are looking at quality, that's something that we've lost sight of for the last little while. I mean, how many companies can we point to and say they make shirts and pants and what they did was they made a name for themselves and then they sloughed off the manufacturing to the cheapest bid and now the brand that they created, which was something that people really, really liked, really, really wanted to wear, is just a bunch of Kleenex. I can put my finger through the shirt. You got to be careful when you're putting it on. You can see through it. Terrible. That is terrible. You've made a brand and then you let the quality slip. And hopefully that does come back to bite you. I don't know if it does. I really don't. Because people will just go and say, yeah, well, this this is that brand. This is what I like to buy. So I'm going to buy it. But the idea that quality could be coming ahead of cost, that in my mind is positive. Now, in all of that, you've got to look at price point. And we all know that one of the reasons why we've got manufacturing that has shifted to a different country like Mexico is because that way the price of the vehicles comes down or the price of the vehicles does not go up. Well, it'll be interesting to see what does happen in this instance, because if you are focused in on making sure that those jobs exist in Cami and making sure that the vehicles are produced there, That's a real positive. I don't think we're going to see a a major jump in prices, just the way that they're doing business. But the idea that they're appearing to choose Cami and Ingersoll over their plant in Mexico because you don't want the quality of your vehicle to suffer, that's got something. That definitely has something. So whether it's a trend, whether it's just one company doing this, we'll keep watching. But for right now, in the wake of what is kind of a – a disappointing story and a, and a kind of, of a difficult story, you do have that kind of a silver lining. We're not talking about getting rid of a shift at Cami. And Mike Van Bokel, if you missed it, pointed out that he's pretty optimistic that they will have a new shift or, or sorry, that they will have a new product to produce, maybe even within the calendar year. So we'll keep tabs on that too. Coming up, we are going to talk about a, a tragic story, but a call for something to happen to prevent this from occurring again. And we're also going to meet somebody whose son benefited from the first pediatric robot-assisted neurosurgery in Ontario. Where do you think it happened? I'll give you one guess. And if you say anything other than London, you're not right. 
It happened in London. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. In about 45 minutes from right now, we're going to be joined by Jody Emery. We're going to be talking about pot pardons. Get her thoughts on those. Princess of Pot joins us on the show. We'll talk about something that is exactly a year away in London. And again, we've got the first pediatric robot-assisted neurosurgery that has happened in Ontario. It happened in London. And we've got a, a real unique perspective on that. But as we begin our number two, a devastating story and a call for somebody to do something to prevent this from ever happening again. We'll lay it out for you after news. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. You may remember the news story about a young woman whose car crashed into a great big farm tractor, and that vehicle was being driven by a 15-year-old who did not have a license. Because at 15, you can't. Nevertheless, a 15-year-old was driving that vehicle. It happened on the corner of Glendon Drive and Troops Road in Middlesex County. Tomorrow, there is going to be a news conference at Millar's Law, and it is going to... Take us back to that story, and it's going to feature people who are still still absolutely at their wits' end about what to do because of that story. The fiancé and the parents of the young woman whose life was lost in that crash. Joining us right now from Millar's Law is Phil Millar. Phil, thanks for taking some time out for us. Good afternoon, my friend. Phil, let's talk about the incident at first. We just spelled out some of the, the basic details, but when you look at this from from kind of a, a large standpoint, what exactly did you see take place here? Well, from, from reliving it with the family, you know, it's, it's, a, tra- it's a tragedy of tremendous proportions. Uh, as, uh, you know, the young lady was pregnant with her first child and, and slammed in slammed into the, the tractor trailer that a large farm equipment um, vehicle was towing. So, you know, the first thing, you know, having been a former prosecutor and dealing with personal injury files uh, was, you know, is this preventable death? And to me, it seemed right away it was preventable death. And Although, when we talk about a, a preventable death, take us into the, you know, the, the legal world or or take us into the the world of of what you would perceive as, as being a crime. Where does a preventable death come in? Yeah, and I'm not. Gonna, I don't want to take away from the press conference tomorrow. And it's a testament to how good you are to even get me on here, but the day before because it doesn't usually happen. Uh, but uh, the my underlying belief is that farm equipment vehicles have have gotten huge in the last couple of decades, and most of your listeners will see. I've been on the road when a giant combine almost forces them onto the shoulder uh, because we have mega farms, big corporate farms that have a lot of money and they, they're now huge compared to what the farm equipment vehicles were like 50 years ago. But the laws haven't really kept up with them. And my issue is um, just in general, like if you have an oversized farm vehicle and you're going to tow it, there has to be a wide load escort and a wide load sign. But that same vehicle could drive on the highway because it's a farm vehicle, and it doesn't need it. And I think 
uh, you know, that poses a danger that needs to be addressed through the laws is that we have these farm vehicles can get away with being on the roads that a construction vehicle couldn't be on. And, you know, especially out in Glendon Road and some of these other highways we have, they're getting really busy. In this particular case, you know, I feel bad for the kids because he was doing probably what his dad told him, driving the, the tractor. But he made, a le- he made a turn from, like, a little access road, and he made a left turn onto that highway where if you were driving down Glendon Road, there is a sign right there that says you're not allowed to turn left onto that access road because it's a blind corner. So this kid was driving a tractor with a 100-foot trailer and pulled left, you know, across the roadway when to his left was a blind corner, a hill. And then that's when um, our client came over the over the hill and then and slammed into the trailer. We're talking with Phil Millar from Millar's Law, and we're talking about a news conference that is going to take place tomorrow at Millar's Law at about 1.30. Can you tell us who's going to be there and, and what sorts of things will be talked For sure. about? For sure. The, um, uh, her fiancé will be there, but you know, the, the sadness is, you know, he's there in support. Um, the, uh, her parents will be there, Ms. Shore's parents, and I think... They've kind of adopted what I think is, a, is an honorable position, which is, look, let's get these, these laws changed because it's, it's a matter of time before it happens again. You can't be driving these giant vehicles on the road without the same safety features of other vehicles when it's really busy. And I think because they're locals in Middlesex County as well, that whole, the West is built out so fast that there's a lot of these little access roads that are in weird locations and, and uh our position is we don't think the county's done enough to kind of deal deal with the flow issues and make it safe because that that left turn from that troops road access road that is not a safe turn and anybody who drives down there I think will agree with me. That's a great point because you're right. We we do have a lot of those little roads that, especially if you're not familiar with the roadways, you're on a road going straight, but somebody who may be very familiar is going, yeah, yeah, I just got this little jog here and then I can go parallel to this road and it takes me where I need to go. If you're not used to driving on those roads, you're not even going to expect that something like that could happen. No, it's not safe. And, you know, and farmers are just used to doing their stuff. And so 50 years ago, not a lot of traffic, but now it's really busy. And then, you know, you put a kid in charge of a giant tractor, a hundred foot trailer, you know, and then he makes a less turn off one of them. It's, it's tragic for the kid because he, he did, probably didn't know any better. And, uh, but, you know, the farm that employed him should have rules about that. And there's no way that they should be, they should be taking vehicles that big across the roadway. And so I think we think it's time to change the law and uh, it's not frivolous. I think it'll save lives and, and that's the purpose of it. And often you can't get this type of change unless you make some noise uh, with a lawsuit. Well, it will happen tomorrow. There is a, a lawsuit that is in place right now? We'll be announcing it tomorrow. Okay. Phil, thank you so much for your time today. That is Phil Millar from Millar's Law. And again, talking about the case of Rachel Joris and the the crash, Phil did a very good job of outlining what happened, where you have a big vehicle that is towing a big vehicle, basically a tractor trailer, and there is a turn onto an access road. And sometimes you sit there and you make fun of access roads. My son is just starting to drive. So wherever we go, he drives. And it gives you a different perspective to kind of look around and point out different things. And I remember we were coming over the 401 just off Colonel Talbot. And we're driving kind of around the corner. He's driving. 
and we look, and, and Tempo Road is there, and it's this little access road. And he kind of looked at me and he said, Tempo Road, where is, where is that even going? And I said, I have no idea. And he says, next time we come this way, can we see? And I said, yeah, sure, next time we'll, we'll turn on to Tempo Road. But as Phil is pointing out, a lot of those little access roads are kind of hidden. You don't notice them until you're really paying attention. And in this case, you had something very unfortunate happen in one instance. You had an unlicensed driver performing that. And you had tragedy happen because from a blind spot on the road, all of a sudden, you have someone who is pregnant with her first child coming up and over a hill and crashing into a vehicle and losing her life. So that's what will be discussed tomorrow. And we'll have more details on some of the things that will come out of that announcement. But the expectation is they're going to ask for, as Phil said, changes to the law. And for people to look at this saying, and Phil put it into a really good perspective, why is it that when you are towing a massive farm vehicle, you need an escort, but that same size vehicle can drive on the road without an escort? Laws aren't keeping up. Well, this way we do get something that is an absolute tragedy, but perhaps could bring change. We will take a break. Up next, something that brought change in the medical world, and that change was exacted for someone here in London. And because of it, he's going to be on the football field this weekend. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. Yesterday on London Live, we were talking about epilepsy. We were learning a lot more about epilepsy. Courtesy of Dylan DiGirolamo and her epilepsy toolkit. And you can check that out. Search Epilepsy Toolkit online and you'll find out more about that. But Dylan suffers from a certain type of epilepsy that went undiagnosed for a while. It did not involve seizures, but it is still epilepsy. And there are so many things we don't know about it. We have today a pretty amazing story that involves epilepsy. It's all about a procedure to help a 14-year-old named Ethan who suffers from epilepsy. Now, Anita is Ethan's mom, and we're lucky enough to have Anita joining us now on London Live to outline what has taken place. It's a first in Ontario, and it has happened right here in London. Anita, how are things going for you and, and your family? Uh, pretty amazing. We're, uh, we're lucky to be in the position we're in. I want to read the headline of what has just happened that you and your son have been a part of. Your entire family has been a part of this. Children's Hospital at London Health Sciences Centre performs first pediatric robot-assisted neurosurgery in Ontario. Uh, it sounds like it's somewhere out of a, a sci-fi movie. It sounds like it's something that would be made up in, in a TV script. It's not. This is real life for you and your son, Ethan. What has this procedure been like? It's it's life-changing. Like, from the moment it happened, you know, we were in a 70-private room with another patient that had um, a procedure that was different, um, not uh, robot-assisted, and the recovery was was different. And so we were really, really thankful. Luckily, that patient is also 
well, but uh, we were really, really lucky to be able to have Ethan and um, his recovery time was so short. It was, it was crazy to see him up within the first day and moving around and functioning and doing all the things that he needed to do and talking to the team the way everybody was really ecstatic and, and happy about it. And then moving forward throughout the entire time, we had so much wonderful support. And, and now with being seizure-free, it's just, it's utopia. We, we were striving for that. We were hopeful, but it's actually a miracle that it happened. We're so lucky. Well, we'll get to the idea that you were the first, and sometimes there can be a lot of apprehension with being the first to do anything. Mm. I'm not going to try it, you try it. I'm not going to try it, you try it. We all know the Life Serial commercial that goes back in time, but in this particular case, let's look at what you and Ethan have been dealing with. He has epilepsy. When did his seizures start? He was nine years old when it started, so it's been a long process to, to get to where he is today. And take us through what was happening with Ethan. What types of seizures was he having, and, and how often was he having them? Well, Ethan had a, a couple of different types of seizures, and it certainly um, everybody's epilepsy is different. It evolves and grows as uh, the patient ages. For Ethan in particular, he was having them more so at night, so he was... If you want to call that lucky, we looked at it as lucky from our perspective, simply because, you know, from a child's perspective, they don't want to show up. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with having epilepsy and, you know, but there is judgment and children look at things differently. And so, you know, being a young guy, he didn't want to show up at school and have seizures because kids don't understand. And, you know, he had many years of that. He still played sports. We didn't want to put him in a bubble, so we chose to still have him play football and soccer and and do all the things he wanted to do. And, you know, the worry uh, about having a seizure on the field was real, and it didn't happen too many times, but it still happened. And it was was really tough for him to deal with. And, you know, as time went on and it started to escalate, and unfortunately, you know, you can only do so much with medications – um, we are so thankful to have the opportunity to talk about, you know, surgery period, let alone the miracle of, of the robot coming into play. We're talking with Anita. Anita's son, Ethan, is now 14, started having epileptic seizures at the age of nine. And now Ethan has become the first individual to undergo a pediatric robot-assisted neurosurgery. So, I know that we can get into some pretty technical details here, but in terms of what a surgery is designed to do for a patient who has epilepsy, what is the hope when you have that surgery? The hope really is that uh, you're seizure-free, and as Dr. Andrade would say, you know, you cure epilepsy. And so along with being seizure-free, you know, you go through a controlled time frame of ramping down medications and weaning, and so we are in the middle of that right now. We are, we're pretty excited. And, and that really is kind of the, the stretch goal or the hope. And uh, we've, been, we've been so thankful and so lucky to be one of the, the percentage that it worked for. We're talking with Anita. And let's now look at the idea that you were the first. Again, if somebody says, would you like to do this? You say, oh, okay, I I might like to do that. Can I see the results? Can I see the data? Can I see how things have gone before now? 
You didn't have that because nobody else in the province had done it. This has been performed in other ways, but nobody in the province had done it. When it was presented to you to have a robotic surgery, what did you have to talk about? I mean, so I come from tech, so maybe I was looking at it a little bit differently, but I mean, this is still my child that was involved. The, the thing about it is, is I, I said that he started seizing when he was nine and, you know, Dr. Andrade, I think we started working with her a couple of years into it. We have a great deal of trust with Dr. Andrade and her team. And when you have that amount of trust in somebody, which you really, really need with your medical team. We just looked at her and said, do you honestly and truly believe it? She said, of course I do, or I wouldn't have proposed it. And you've got to, you know, weigh the pros and cons. They were able to give us anything they could. But as you said, it's the first. You can't, it's never guaranteed regardless of whether they have, have data or not. And, but it comes down to the trust. We trust her, we trust her team, and we went for it. Anyone who has had a family member, a loved one, a friend go through surgery knows that you as a mom would have gone into that waiting room. You've got that great big board and the board kind of ticks down and you have the patient number and you can see at what part the surgery is at, those sorts of things. Were you through that as a mom? Oh, yes. What oh, was yes. that like the, knowing the whole, how how serious this, this surgery was? Um, yeah, it was definitely a different sort of experience. We've been through a couple of minor surgeries before, but this was different. I mean, this is his brain. <laughs> you know, final organ. Um, so yeah, it was a little, it was a little uh, wrenching. You know, his father was there with his wife. I was there with my husband, you know, so there was actually four of us, which made it great because we were all able to rely on each other and <laughs> kind of talk through the day. Um, it was hard though, because you start going, oh, you know, we're coming up on you know, a couple of hours. What does this look like? What's happening? The hospital's pretty great, right? They, they're good and communicative. So, you know, it wasn't that bad, but Again, it's the first. It's a brain. <laughs> I just want to see my kid. And it, it was sensational. He looks great. So we were so lucky. And then you mentioned the recovery, watching him recover. You talked about Ethan being able to walk around very, very quickly. For any of us that aren't really well-versed in this sort of surgery, how different an experience is that? Well, again, what I will say is I, I was in the hospital with him, so I viewed other patients that had had the procedure in a different way. And, you know, it was sensational to see that, you know, and every patient is different, certainly also within the procedure. But the fact is his recovery was stellar and it was so quick. Like we couldn't believe how sensationally looked even a day in. He was only in ICU, I think not even, well, anyways, it was the minimum requirement <laughs> to be like, safe about it, but they were like, yeah, he's, he's sensational. He can go like he was probably in there longer than he needed to be, but they have minimum requirements and they're, they're amazing at keeping people safe here. So, um, it was, it was just so good. Like I couldn't, I couldn't imagine it any other way just because, you know, he's, he's one of those kids too. He's a perseverer, but it was, it, it was just great to see. We're really lucky to be in the area we are. I mean, you could be born in a lot of other parts in the world where this this wouldn't even be thought of. This wouldn't even be possible. Mm-hmm. What about the experience you've had in, in that respect? Do you ever sit late at night and think, wow, it's pretty amazing what we're able to do here? Ooh, all the time. All the time. I'm, I kind of, I'm, I'm a... 
what would I call myself? I'm an unofficial advocate of LHSC just because we've used LHSC so extensively. And so we're so lucky to have it in our backyard and particularly in this situation, like to have Dr. Andrade and her team here and, you know, for innovation to be the focus and for them to be like, what is the best possible outcomes we can have here in this hospital and who can we partner with? What can we do? Like, they're never just satisfied with like, oh, this is good. It's always what's the next thing that we can do for our patients to help as many people as possible. Like, I'm constantly thinking about that. And for people that don't necessarily have to use LHSC, like I'm hoping what they hear is the fact like, if you ever had to, thank God it's in your backyard, number one. And if you can help, help LHSC. Anita, thanks so much for this. What is Ethan's prognosis now? How are things going? Ah, he's one of the lucky ones. He's seizure-free since the surgery. Um, he's pla- back playing sports. In fact, he's on the AAA Premier Bantam London Junior Mustangs football team vying for the Ontario Provincial Championships this Saturday. Go Stangs. Come on. And he, is he um, going to be able to play? Oh, yeah. Come on. Oh, yeah. He, he's had brain uh, yeah, surgery he's during the season? Brain surgery? Yeah. And now he's able to play? Oh, yeah. He's, he, he's fierce on the field. He's like a freight train. He's the linebacker. <laughs> Those QBs are always looking a little scared when Ethan's tracking them down. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is one of the most amazing stories we've been able to tell in a long time. Anita, thank you and, and thank the team of Dr. Andrade the next time you see them. And wish Ethan best of luck this weekend. Go get that championship. Yeah, will do. Thanks so much. Anita, whose son Ethan underwent the first ever pediatric robot-assisted neurosurgery in Ontario, happened here in London this weekend. He goes after a championship for the London Junior Mustangs. We will speak with the head coach of the London Junior Mustangs tomorrow on London Live. Up next, we've got news still to come. One year from now, something big is happening in London. We'll talk about it. And we'll talk with the Princess of Pot as well about pot pardons. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. Cannabis became legal in Canada October 17th, 2018. We've seen a few things happen since then. We're going to see more. Tomorrow on London Live, we're actually going to be talking about edibles and beverages and all of the products that are going to become available, let's say sometime by December of 2019, even though I think they become legal October of 2019. But today, the federal government jumped out and unveiled the free and quick way for anyone in this country to apply for a pot pardon if you are charged with possession of cannabis and it's online. We're going to get some reaction to that from someone who follows things like this incredibly closely in just a moment. First, though, we are one year away from... A big event, one of the next big events to come to London, Ontario. We've finished up the Junos. We were just talking with Chris Campbell of Tourism London a little over an hour ago. He was instrumental in bringing the Junos here. Well, we have the Ontario Summer Games coming to London, Ontario, and the countdown is definitely on. Joining us right now 
from Tourism London is Xanth Jarvis. Xanth, we can count down two more days and we get a long weekend. That's good. That's a good countdown. Another one is one year now to go before the Ontario Summer Games. Look at this. One year away. Yeah, it's an exciting time. I mean, we've been we've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes, and we're finally uh, happy to be able to share some of that info with our our sports and our website being announced and starting the process with some volunteer recruitment. There's been a lot of questions and inquiries, so we just wanted to celebrate the fact that it's a landmark one year away and start providing some of those details and getting people excited. This time next year on the calendar, Ontario Summer Games will be underway, and they're bringing. All kinds of amazing athletes from around the province. You did mention volunteers, and if there is one thing that big events to this city brings alive, it is the volunteerism, the spirit that this community has. If somebody is looking to volunteer, how do they do that? Yeah, and just to touch on that volunteer point, I mean, uh, when when we're bidding on events, that's sometimes the decision maker for, for London to win the event. Some communities have trouble finding volunteers, but a lot of Sport organizations, oh, when you bring an event to London, they're going to have plenty of volunteers. So we always appreciate that support. For those interested, they can visit www.london2020.ca, click on the volunteer tab, and then it'll take you through a, a bit of a registration there. It's just an expression of interest at this time. So you're not going to select which sports and which roles you'd like to do, but just hey, I'm interested, leave your name and your email address and your number, and we'll be in touch as soon as it opens up so you can be first to pick uh, what sports and what roles you want. Uh, we're expecting all of that to open up um, towards the end of this year or if not early 2020. All of the roles tend to be pretty fun. Talk to anybody who has volunteered, whether it's shuttling, whether it's at a particular event, but what sorts of things do the volunteers do? And for anybody who hasn't done it before, what kind of time commitment does that deal with? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we ask that you can at least commit to either two or three shifts um, back in, in 2018. But the roles, yeah, as you mentioned, there's all types of roles from sports-specific. So maybe your volleyball helping with timekeeping. Um, at those new, new beach courts, we're, we're taking care of the sand between sets, things like that. But then there's also a lot of logistics um, pre- and post-games for someone that might be interested in that. So setting up signage and getting uh, the city all ready, getting all the venues ready to go, delivering water, equipment, metals, uh, you name it. If you have an interest, we can definitely find a role for you. We're talking with Xanth Jarvis from Tourism London. As we look ahead a year on the calendar and we find the Ontario Summer Games coming, as far as, as those sorts of things like medals, do you have to handle that stuff? Do you have to order that stuff or does that kind of come with the event? Absolutely. We take care of all of that. Uh, produced thousands of medals uh, last year, and we, we, we're going to be doing the same thing again. We went through a bit of a process in, in, in designing and, and selecting which design to go with, and we'll be launching something like that again soon. All right. Well, the countdown begins to that. Countdown is now down to one year away. Xanth, again, the website for anybody who might want to help out, might want to check into volunteering, where do they go? www.london2020.ca and you can also follow us on all the social medias at OSG London 2020. Have yourself an amazing day. You as well. Thanks a lot, Mike. Anytime. Xanth Jarvis from Tourism London. Let's take a break. Up next, we'll look at the federal government's new online pot pardon system. This is an attempt to alleviate some issues people have had 
for volunteering, believe it or not. That's one of those things. Travel, uh, housing, employment, because they've had a pot charge on their record. So now there's a new online system. It's free. Apparently it's going to be quicker to apply to have a pardon for a possession of cannabis or a cannabis-related product. We'll talk with Jody Emery about this, get her thoughts on how she thinks this will work and how it will go over. That's next. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. So we had today Federal Justice Minister David Lametti unveiling something brand new, a new system. And you can say it's online, it's free, and it is being put in place to help individuals who have been charged and convicted of simple possession of a cannabis-related product before cannabis was made legal. Because there can be issues with traveling, there can be issues with employment, there can be issues if you want to be a volunteer. So let's talk with someone who pays very, very close attention to all of these particular decisions. Please welcome to London Live, Jody Emery. Jody, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank you for the chance to talk. When this is presented, when someone says, well, it's now online, well, it's free, and it's an opportunity to apply to have simple possession convictions basically pardoned, done away with, they're not on your record anymore, you would think that that would be a very positive thing. How do you see this? I see it as more of an election ploy than anything. I see it as the liberals pretending to care about the harms caused by cannabis criminalization. But this Liberal government, upon being elected, ordered the police to continue enforcing the law and arresting people. So many of the pot possession records that exist happened under Trudeau's watch in recent years. That harm has already been caused. Pardons also don't go far enough. They can still show up at the border and they can be revoked. And when you get hired for a job, they don't always ask, do you have a criminal record? They ask if you've ever been arrested and convicted. And to that, people still need to say yes. So the government is still demonizing cannabis. They're not offering amnesty for everyone. Amnesty would be true erasing of records and treating it like the historical injustice that it is, and which Bill Blair admits it is. So the government is maintaining the criminal records of a lot of people, including myself, who have been convicted of more than just simple possession. People who operated dispensaries and went to court after getting arrested and changed the laws in this country, those people aren't simple possession criminal record holders. So the government isn't really recognizing that cannabis should never have been criminalized in the first place. They're simply offering this pardon proposal as an election ploy to pretend that they care about criminal records, but even today, people are being charged under the new Cannabis Act for simple possession. Just having one gram of cannabis that was not bought from the government is still a crime. The legalization laws didn't legalize anything that existed before. The dispensaries, the compassion clubs, the craft cannabis, it's all still illegal. The only legalization came for cops and politicians and premiers and prime ministers to start stock market companies and 
push and push their companies, get exclusive licenses that no one else can afford, and Canadians are still being charged and arrested and paying enforcement every day. It's a travesty. We're talking with Jody Emery, and we're talking about what was announced today by Federal Justice Minister David Lametti. It is what has been termed a quick, a free way to go online and apply for a pardon for a simple possession of marijuana, cannabis, cannabis product. But as Jody has outlined, that doesn't always mean what it sounds like it means. Because to anybody who has never had to deal with a pardon in their life, you would think, okay, well, that absolves everything. That You're fine. You're in the clear. Jody has spelled out that's not what it's like. Jody, your personal experience becomes so useful here. Tell us times in your life when this has basically weighed on you and, and changed things that you wanted to do, affected things you wanted to do. Well, I was an actor starting in 2005, and I ran for office, and I edited a magazine, but I never used civil disobedience because Mark Emery, my husband, got arrested by the U.S. government in Canada for financing legalization with marijuana seeds. So I spent all these years following the law, going to the U.S., visiting prisons there for five years. So I was always following the rules, but in early 2016, when legalization was supposed to come, when Trudeau said he was going to license all the shops, um, and when we thought it would be legal, I decided to start franchising cannabis dispensaries for adult recreational use as a model of what legalization should look like. But of course, the police didn't take kindly to that. I was arrested in 2017, and I took a plea deal to avoid prison and to eliminate the charges against 18 employees so I took a plea deal, and it was a massive fine, and pled guilty to trafficking over three kilograms of cannabis, and for uh, proceeds of crime, which they always tag on. So for people to understand what the criminal charges are, there's possession, which is just simple possession, and there's trafficking. Trafficking can come even from passing a joint, which Justin Trudeau admits he did, and which Mark Henry served three months for doing. So trafficking under three kilograms under the previous law was minor trafficking. You know, street dealers, just kids or teens selling to each other. You know, the, the crimes that most would be charged for trafficking. But once dispensaries opened, people got arrested there, and they were charged with trafficking for bud tending. Those are still on the lower end, under three kilograms. But me, I got over the kilograms. So I'm in the, you know, kingpin, queenpin territory, even though I never actually sold cannabis. I only came up with the idea, but I discharged. And now it's preventing me from getting into the legal cannabis business. A lot of criminal record holders aren't allowed to get jobs in cannabis legally. You can't get a license. You can't grow it. You can't own companies. So we're locked out of the new system and locked up if we dare try to get into it. And so the costs are extremely prohibitive. You need to be a millionaire, literally, to be able to engage in the legal market. So for me and many others who didn't have money for so long, we thought that we could create jobs and grow organically through the free market. And that's what Canadians want to support. That's why the government is using police raids and new expensive cannabis enforcement units all designed to go after the pre-existing cannabis industry to force Canadians to buy from the government instead. And as I mentioned, many of these new companies are run by former police, prime ministers, and mayors and government officials, and they're making 
hundreds of millions of dollars while they continue to arrest the poor and the marginalized who try to find opportunities with cannabis. Um, so we need true amnesty. Cannabis legalization should recognize that it never has been a crime in the first place. And any Canadian who is peaceful and nonviolent, like me, who is charged with any sort of cannabis offense, should have those records erased entirely. If the government is selling weed and paying their bills with marijuana money, they shouldn't have anyone else deemed a criminal for doing the very same thing yesterday. Now, right now, we're looking at the justice minister saying this is just for simple possession. You think that should go across the board, not just simple possession, but across the board. Absolutely. And in the United States, there are already efforts to do that. In many places, when they voted for legalization, even before the law became official, the government would say, don't arrest anybody. Uh, Clearly, we're going to change the law, so we don't need to arrest people anymore. They have that ability. And in Canada, they had that ability too. But they put the former police chief Toronto in charge of legalization. So, of course, the police got more laws, more budgets. We now have a billion dollars in police budgets for marijuana, which is up from the half billion that used to be spent every year. You know, Trudeau in 2013 said the main reason to legalize is to stop burdening Canadians with criminal records, to stop wasting tax dollars going after cannabis. And he said that they would legalize and license dispensaries and businesses that already existed. But then the police and big business got involved, and they all wanted to keep getting paid. So now they have 45 new federal laws, all sorts of provincial and municipal bylaws and regulations, and they're all designed to restrict and limit access to cannabis to only the government-approved people while everyone else is still arrested. And cannabis legalization is supposed to be the end of criminalization. It's supposed to say it was wrong to arrest people and harm them. It was wasteful of tax dollars, and it was more destructive than cannabis itself ever was. And alcohol and tobacco, which the government sells and makes billions of dollars from and depend on, they don't care about those harms to society, but cannabis is demonized and still lied about just to make sure that they can keep arresting people. But, you know, Ralph Goodale first said we needed to introduce pardons and People like the group Cannabis Amnesty said, we need full amnesty, not just pardons. Goodell said, well, we only reserve amnesty and expungements for crimes that were a great historical injustice, like the raids on bathhouses and anti-gay legislation. So he said it's not a historical injustice. But Bill Blair himself acknowledged and said that cannabis laws have disproportionately been targeted towards minorities and poor people and indigenous groups, making cannabis prohibition a great historical injustice. So they admit that it was wrong to get the votes, and then they continue to say it's wrong, and that today the government can sell weed, but they're going to arrest anyone else who does it. And when you have governments in charge of licensing, like in Ontario and British Columbia, and they sell pot themselves, of course they're not going to issue licenses to people to be their competition. That's why indigenous groups in British Columbia and dispensaries are being shut down because the government comes in and says, we're not going to give you a license, we're opening up our own store here. This is a massive disaster, but we should strive to make legalization better. And that's what I promise to keep doing. Cannabis legalization is supposed to be about liberation and the end of criminalization, not more money for cops and more tough laws and more people losing access to the medicine and cannabis that they want. Jody, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for letting me share. Take care. Take care. Thanks.
Food for thought on the issue. So what appears to be, hey, pardons, pardons, get your pardons, and everything will be fine. Jody says, wait a minute. Not quite like that. Mike, we've got 60 seconds, but they're all yours. What do you think? <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Uh, I think it makes sense that the Liberals are trying to are wanting to give out pardons because, uh, yeah, these convictions discriminate very much against people who don't care about our laws, and those are Trudeau's favorite kind of people. <laughs> but if we... Uh, if we leave or give pardons for enough things, eventually we'll have what we want, which is the prime minister who has a clean track record. So <laughs> you just got to give out a few more pardons, and we'll have a great prime minister. Mike, thanks for that. Thanks for the call. Thanks, Doug. <laughs> well said. All right, let's take a break. We'll close out the show in just a minute. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. Tomorrow on the show... We are going to be talking about full-year schooling. There are already kids who've gone back. Does this work? Is this good? We'll talk about hockey for everyone. We will talk about the London Junior Mustangs going after a provincial championship at the Bantam level this coming weekend. Lots and lots and lots of things ahead on London Live. We are also going to talk cannabis in another way. What are the products that are actually becoming available? What do we have to watch out for? This bugs me when it comes to kids. I, I had my apprehension when it came to cannabis itself. Eh, it's, it hasn't seemed to make that big a difference. But edibles and beverages, that's all, that's all different in my mind. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Thanks to Kelly Wong for her help. London Live brought to you by Courtesy Ford Lincoln at 684 Warncliffe Road South. News is on the way next with Jacqueline LaBelle. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL.